0: Please rise as you are able for the reading of today's scripture, which comes from the 21st chapter of John, verses 1 through 19. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach But the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore... They saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast." Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, When you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, Follow me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you so much, Theron, for reading our text, our lesson uh, this morning on the fourth Sunday of Easter. For those of you who don't know, uh, Theron Kirk is the brother of our own Deech Kirk, who runs CYMT next door, and Theron and Cecil, for many, many years Uh, served in the Memphis Conference of the United Methodist Church. And prior to that, were missionaries in Vietnam at one point. And it is a great joy to have them among us and with us in this fellowship as well. We're glad you're here on a sleepy Sunday morning. By my count, I think this is the fifth rainy Sunday morning in sequence that we've had these last five Sundays. And we're grateful for the rain and we're grateful for your presence. Today Uh, If you're visiting with us, we're concluding a series that we began on Easter Sunday, on April Fool's Day, called Risen, with the final appearance of the risen Christ to the disciples according to the Gospel of John. What you may note from the get-go is that this scene in John 21 is different from the others that we've read in that it doesn't happen on a Sunday behind closed doors. It happens on a weekday on the open sea. And so, this is not a grief support group. This is not a church prayer meeting. This is a fishing trip. And the disciples have gone back home to Tiberius. They've gone back to Galilee, back to the familiar, back to their routine. They've gone back to what they know. They're doing what some of us have said before. When we've gone through a difficult period of time, we're searching for the new normal. This is where the disciples are. And Peter announces to the others, to the other six, I'm going fishing. And the others reply, we'll go with you. I'm convinced at this point that the disciples are so ambivalent that Peter could have said, I'm going camel racing. And the others would have said, we'll go with you. Because the truth of the matter is, at this point, they're they're not really sure what to do. Reminds me me of Barbara Brown Taylor, the Episcopal priest, who once said, fishing is, is an excuse for not having to think. I think that's true. Fishing is an excuse for not having to think. I was reading recently a book on fly fishing. I was reminded how Ernest Hemingway once said that if fishing is a religion, Fly fishing is high church, and I think that's true. Our youth director, Adam Jones, is a fly fisherman. Anyway, I was reading this particular author, and he said, and I quote, the solution to any problem that you have, be it work, love, or money, is to go fishing. And the bigger the problem, the longer the fishing trip. And that's where the disciples were, gone fishing. In spite of the previous appearances in chapter 20, they're ambivalent at this point as to next steps. What do we do next? And so they go back to what they know. And yet what you see in this text is that apparently the old life, the BC life before Christ, no longer has the same appeal to these guys. We note this in that little phrase, empty nets. They had fished all night, which was the best fishing in Galilee in the first century, was nighttime fishing. They fished all night, and they come back empty-handed. And those empty nets signify that the old life is no longer fulfilling to them. Because once you have walked with Jesus, you are forever spoiled to any lesser pursuit. And they're discovering now that life without Jesus is like empty nets. John says they're rowing to shore at daybreak. That's an interesting note. Daybreak is a subtle reference to the resurrection. Easter happened at daybreak, at dawn, on the third day, first day of the week. And as they're nearing the boat dock, they see a stranger on the shore, and the stranger is is trying to communicate with them, again, as we noted last week, with a question There are very few edicts of Jesus in the Gospels, but there's over 300 questions. And this stranger asks again a question to which he already knows the answer. You boys catching anything? And they respond, not a nibble. We're just drowning worms. And then he directs them to cast their net on the starboard side of the boat. And you know what happens next. What a mess of fish they catch. This scene is actually a fulfillment of John 15, verse 5, where Jesus says to his friends on the night before he dies, apart from me, you can do nothing. So on their own, life is empty nets. But when they obey the stranger on the shore, there's an abundance. This is thematic in the the gospel of John. It's ironic. That after the prologue in John, in John chapter 2, the gospel begins with a wedding party where there is an abundance of wine. And the epilogue, chapter 21, ends with a fishing trip where there is a surplus of seafood. There is an abundance. Without Jesus, empty nets. With Christ, an abundance. Abundance. I love this authentic fishing story too because John remembers the exact number of the fish they caught. Real fishermen always keep the count. 153 and notice they add big fish. Biggest fish I ever caught was the one I missed. Even the picture weighed eight pounds, six ounces. So they're stretching a bit. Big fish, 153. I remember When my dad and I grew up fishing in West Tennessee, my father and I would go on a fishing trip. We'd come home. My sister would say, how many did you catch? And I'd say, oh, I don't know, about 27. I always knew. We always knew. Jerome, the early church father, wrote that early zoologists in the first century identified 153 different species of fish And so this number is indicative for John of the diversity of the fellowship. In other words, there is room in this net for every species. And yet in spite of the big catch, the net remains untorn. I love that. I was walking at Radnor the other day and it was a sunny day unlike today and I was looking out, there was a log stretching out into the water and there were turtles lined on that log, only turtles. It was Turtle Church that day. And there they were. I walked past them, I greeted them, and walked to the next log, where there were several turtles, and they let in two ducks on their log. And I thought, this is Radical Turtle Church. (laughs) And there beside was a crane. I took him to be the preacher, and there they were in all their diversity, and they were sharing the same log. And I thought about the church, that the net is not torn by diversity. It's actually strengthened. And it's John, who is ever-intuitive, ever-discerning, who says it's the Lord. This is rather humorous, Peter's response, who is always impulsive. Notice he's been fishing in the nude, and when he sees Jesus, he puts on his clothes, dives into the water, and swims to Jesus. And Jesus, what's Jesus doing on the shore? He's cooking breakfast. It's a sacrament. Listen to the language. He takes bread, blesses it and breaks it, gives it to them along with the fish, and their eyes are opened. It's Eucharistic, and they know him. There's one other detail here that's easy to miss, and I think it's important to note. Jesus, says John, is cooking breakfast on a charcoal fire. What, what difference does it make, what kind of fire? It makes a difference. You remember the trial on Monday Thursday evening? While Jesus is being interrogated by the high priest, Peter is in the courtyard warming himself, says John, beside a charcoal fire. It was beside the charcoal fire that he denied his Lord three times And now here's Jesus in risen glory cooking breakfast on the beach by a charcoal fire. That's not a throwaway line. It's amazing to me how the sense of smell can trigger memory. Have you ever noticed this? This is why whenever I smell fresh biscuits, all of a sudden I'm eight years of age, and I'm sitting at the kitchen table in Bluefield, Virginia, at my grandmother's table, waiting for that fresh bread to come out of the oven The olfactory bulb is the part of the limbic system of the brain that is associated with smell, which is also associated with memory and feeling. It is often called the emotional brain. There is a sense in which your smell can dial up the past instantaneously. And a charcoal fire says that something big is about to happen. In a context of empty nets on a failed fishing trip, where it looks as though the disciples are relapsing or regressing, Jesus does a recall of his disciples. I love this. Apparently, General Motors is not the only outfit that does recalls on faulty parts. So does God. And what happens next is one of the most moving depictions in sacred literature the recall of Simon Peter. Now watch this. Jesus refers to Peter by his BC name, before Christ. He calls him Simon, that's interesting. It's the name by which he called him the first time they met in John chapter one. Simon Bar-Jonah, the prefix bar means son of. Simon, son of Jonah. And so it sounds very formal at first. And I wonder why that's the case. Why doesn't he call him Rocky? He renamed him Rocky, Peter, but that's not what he says. If you're a parent or a grandparent, you know that when you call your kiddos by their full name, it usually means business. When I was a boy and my mother would call Wallace Davis Chapel, Jr., I knew there was about to be trouble. It's serious. Simon Barjona? And when you hear that address, if you listen closely, there's actually an echo to another story in the Old Testament. Do you remember the prophet Jonah? The eighth-century prophet of Israel, he too had to be recalled. You remember the story? God called the prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach repentance. And Jonah responded by declining the offer for good reason. I think. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria and the Assyrian armies destroyed Israel where Jonah lived in 721 BC. He was a victim of that. And so the truth is when God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, he doesn't want to preach repentance. He wants to preach punishment. And so what does he do? He gets on the first boat to Tarshish, which is as far away from Nineveh as you can possibly go. Nineveh, not far from Jerusalem, if you go west to the dropping off part of the map in the first century, you will go 2,500 miles to what is Spain today, and there you will find the ancient city of Tarshish. When God called him, he went the exact opposite direction to get away from that call. And they had a little trouble on the boat. (laughs) They had a little storm, raining like today, the winds whipping up, and Jonah, you remember, falls overboard and a big fish comes along and swallows him. And there in the belly of the whale, God calls Jonah a second time, and he decided to obey. That would do it for me, how about you? Simon was a son of Jonah, Because he, too, when he was called, went the opposite way. I don't know if you've ever experienced it or not, but I have. As a disciple, I don't need simply to be just called once. I need to be recalled. Somebody asked me the other day, Pastor, tell me about your call story. I said, which one? Because there are many, and my faith story, is about how God's grace over and over again overcomes my initial reluctance to do what He calls me to do. He was a son of Jonah. And then comes another question. Here's another Jesus question, Simon, son of John, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Now, I've often wondered what Jesus meant when he said, more than these. What's he talking about? There, I think there are two or three possibilities. Maybe, maybe Jesus was looking at Peter's fishing gear. He was taking stock of the boats and the tackle and the nets. And maybe what he meant was, Peter, do you love me more than your stuff? Do you love me more than your possessions, more than your material things? It's interesting, three years before John 21, on the same beach, Jesus called Simon and Andrew to follow him for the first time. Remember? Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And Mark 1, verse 18 says, and they left everything hook, line, and sinker, and they followed him. But in John 21, it looks as if Simon is going back, like he's reclaiming his old life. Do you love me more than your stuff? It could be that Jesus was kind of surveying the other fishermen when he asked the question so that maybe what he meant was, Simon, do you love your friends more than you love me? Do you love your colleagues? Do you love your family? I know you've grown up together, and it's important to love, but are they more important to you than I am? I remember when our daughter Haley was ill, she was about seven or eight, and the nighttime questions, you know, they always come up in the nighttime, in the darkness. And and she was curious one night. She said, Daddy, uh, do you love me? And I said, well, of course, sweetie, I love you. She said, do you love God? And I said, more than anything. And then she said, Daddy, do you love God more than you love me? I had to think about that. And then I responded, honey, I do. I love God more than anything because if I didn't, I could never love you enough. Do you love me more than these? The third possibility is that Jesus may have meant, Simon, do you love me more than these guys love me? In other words, what he's saying or implying is if you're going to be a spiritual leader, if you're going to be a disciple, it can't be just a nominal tip of the hat to God on Sunday. It's got to be more than that. It's got to be a consuming passion, an unyielding devotion, which is likely to be costly. It was for Simon Peter. That's what Jesus meant when he said, the day will come when you'll stretch out your arms and you'll be taken to a place you'd rather not go. Simon Peter was crucified upside down because he refused to be compared to Jesus because he loved him more than anything. And he asked it three times. You ever do that? When you have to repeat a question, It may mean that you're not sure the first time. Do you love me three times? What's he doing? Peter denied him three times. But Jesus, by re-asking the question, isn't shaming Peter. He's shaloming Peter. He's, He's helping Peter to make up for his mistakes. He's not reprimanding him. He's rehabbing him. And for every denial... Jesus gives him a do-over. Anybody need a (laughs) do-over this morning? I remember my first Sunday here, I had, when Sherry and I came five years ago, we had listened to Bishop Spain's sermon before I came, before we came. And he suggested to the congregation that when your new pastor comes that you give him a mulligan. (laughs) And I got to confess, I used it up the second day I was here. You ever go on a golf tournament and you can buy the mulligans for five bucks a piece? Count me in at that table. I need all the help I can get. Maybe you came here this morning and you're in a mess. You've blown it in some way and you can't share it with anybody. You come to the right house. This is a place where mulligans are allowable. And then notice, after each response, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. I love you. You know everything. Then he recommissions. Then feed my sheep. Teach my lambs. Preach to the flock. Pray for the flock. Nurture the flock. Care for the flock. Hold the flock accountable. Guide, support, love the flock The recommission is not only to fish for people, it's to feed sheep and to keep the net from being untorn. Isn't it interesting that God's desire for sheep is that we also become shepherds? There's someone in your life that only you can shepherd. The preacher can't do it that only you can shepherd. That's why, Jesus, that's why Peter said, 1 Peter 5, be shepherds of the flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you have to, but because you're willing as God wants you to be. Let me give you one example of this, and then I'm finished. I had the privilege of officiating a funeral back in January for one of our men whose name was Jack Seaman. Jack was a part of our Sunny Day program. He was a participant in that senior adult program for those with memory loss. His beloved wife, Nancy, of 40 years, said that he'd get up early on Tuesday, a little confused. He would dress up and be waiting for her to take him to what he called the party at the church. They always have a puzzle there for him. And he was the one who would always keep them accountable. If it was one minute after 12, it was too late for lunch for Jack. He loved Sunny Day. Sunny Day loved him. Years ago, he had been a captain in the Army, and he actually worked at the Pentagon before coming back to his native Tennessee, where he became the assistant DA under Tom Shriver. Some of you remember that name. Jack was a brilliant man. We had his service. After the memorial service, I took his family over to the columbarium and we placed his cremains in the niche. And we were coming back towards the church. It was a rainy day. And all of a sudden, I looked, and and his widow, Nancy, had stooped down on the ground. And I thought she'd lost, she was picking something up. And I ran over to help her. And when I saw her face, I saw this look of wonder and surprise, and I said, Nancy, what's going on? And she opened her hand, and she was holding an odd-shaped leaf, a ginkgo leaf. She said, I can't believe it. I said, what is it? She said, the first time Jack ever said I love you to me was under a ginkgo tree. He was working at the Capitol in Nashville. I went over to have lunch with him. And we were walking around the Capitol building, and we stopped under a ginkgo tree. And he told me he loved me. And several years ago, she said, on our anniversary, he gave me a pen, a little pen, of a ginkgo leaf. I'm wearing it now. I wore it for his memorial. And as I was leaving the columbarium, I was looking at the ground in my tears. And there on the brick walk, there it was. Leaf as though it had been placed there for me. It was a sign for her. It was a tangible picture of love and a confirmation of something that will never die. Maybe it was a coincidence. <laughs> Maybe. But it's no more a coincidence than a charcoal fire at a beach. That little leaf is no more coincidental than a mess of fish after a night of empty nets. It's no more a coincidence than an empty tomb and some folded grave clothes. It's no more coincidental than a woman who thought the gardener was the gardener, and heard her name called. Coincidences are God's way of being anonymous. I tell you, I wish I had a nickel for every divine coincidence that I have seen and heard. I I don't even call them coincidences anymore. I call them God incidents. And you've had too many of those not to believe Anyway, good luck convincing Nancy Seaman that that was a coincidence because for that woman, that little leaf is a recall. It's a recommission. It's a reaffirmation of what she already knows. Christ is risen and he's still feeding sheep And he's still recalling relapsed shepherds like us. And once you have tasted and seen, you are forever spoiled to any lesser pursuit. Thanks be to God. Amen.